Well, here at Desert Springs, we usually preach through books of the Bible, and sometimes that brings us to topics that we wouldn't want to talk about ordinarily. Sometimes it brings us to a topic at a time that seems maybe less than ideal to our, our finite thinking. But we trust that the God who gave us this book will also lead us in it and even lead us in the plans for studying it together. And he'll feed us what he'll feed us when he feeds us what we need. And sometimes in his providence, he seems to bring us to a passage and a topic at a a certain time that we couldn't have planned it better if we tried. There's only one verse addressed to husbands in the whole letter of 1 Peter. It's 1 Peter 3, 7. If you have a Bible, turn there with me. That's where we are this morning, and in God's providence, we've come to this one verse about husbands today on Father's Day. I wouldn't have planned it that way. I couldn't have planned it that way. I I changed the plans too often in my preaching schedule as far as what to cover and how far to go, how much to repeat, and what else to include. And so we trust God and his providence. That's where we are this morning. Even if some here this morning, some husbands here this morning are maybe a little put off or annoyed that this is maybe terrible timing, you think. Maybe you think, oh, well, there goes my Father's Day. Because I know whatever it says in verse 7, I'm not going to match up to God's word. I'm going to feel bad all day. I'll probably have to apologize to my wife and kids later on. And all I wanted to do was watch the U.S. Open and be left alone. Be served good food. If a kid can rub my feet, that'd even be better. Me, me, me. Well, if you're tempted to be defensive or to think, oh boy, here we go. If you're tempted to grimace right now, would you just stop and pray quietly that the Lord would, would soften your heart and, and strengthen you and that whatever is said from God's word this morning would be good and be good for Father's Day of all days. Here's what it says. We'll back up and read starting in verse 1 of 1 Peter 3, to see what we saw last week, the first six verses about wives. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. That's what we saw last week. Now, one verse for this week. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, as I said, last week we looked at verses 1 through 6 with God's calling for Christian women who are married to non-Christian men. 
But we said last week that what God says to that kind of lady is also applicable to all Christian women, all Christian wives especially. To be submissive or to put yourself under, to subject yourself to your own husbands is this calling that God has on wives along with this calling, as it says, to respect them. That doesn't mean, as we said last week, it doesn't mean that wives must check their brains at the door of marriage, that they're somehow inferior to their husbands, either morally or intellectually or spiritually in any way. No, but there is a theological picture at stake here, and so God calls husbands to lovingly lead with sacrifice and humility, and he calls wives to honor and follow that leadership unless it violates God's word and it's a leadership into sin. It's a theological picture of God's leadership, Christ's leadership of the church in the church's glad and happy, humble, uh, humbling, honoring following of, of his leadership. There's a picture at stake. And those basic tenets of the role relationship of husbands and wives are assumed as we come to verse 7 today. That men and women are equal in worth, but there's a difference in role and calling, and they were made to complement each other in a mutually beneficial way. So if you weren't here last week and you're scratching your head over something I just read from verses 1 through 6, you can go online, you can watch a video of it, you can listen to audio of it, you could ask me for notes of it, and I'd be glad to send them to you. Think through that. Consider it some more. Don't just think, oh boy, that's That can't be right. Something's wrong there. Surely that's amiss. We'll leave that aside, what we talked about last week for wives, and look this week with husbands. And like last week with what was directed to wives, applying in some ways to the whole church in various ways, it's true also this week. It's directed to husbands, but this this verse has relevance for the whole church. It's what young, unmarried men should seek to become. It's what unmarried women should look for in a potential husband. It's what wives should cheer on and pray for and thank God for when they see it in their husbands, however small it might be. It's what the men of the church should encourage in each other so that ideally this would be a culture of the church. Our our church man culture would be one of 1 Peter 3, 7. I think it also has general implications for the whole church and relationships with each other as we seek to love each other with understanding, as we seek to live with each other, not in the same way that a husband would with a wife. But, but notice, that's exactly what, Paul, uh, what Peter goes on to talk about in verse 8, which we'll see next week, Lord willing. The whole church. He says in verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love. So it flows from what husbands are to do to their wives to what the whole church does with each other and one another. But let's go back to verse 7 and let's start with this head scratcher. Why does Peter give six verses for wives and only one verse for husbands? 
There are a few things we could say about this. One, I hinted at last week, it's certainly not that, that, that men don't need any more than one verse. They need infinitely more than one verse. It's not that they're one-sixth of sinfulness of their wives or something like that. There's no judgment value at all here. We should also note that this is probably a, a kind of parenthetical thought in the flow of topics that Peter has dealt with so far. So go back all the way to chapter 2, verse 12. It's important for us to see the forest, not just this one, verse 7, tree. The forest, starting in verse 12 of chapter 2, Peter said, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's a springboard, which then launches into three different contexts. He he says in verse 13, citizens should be subject to even a pagan and persecuting government that's over them. He says in verse 18, servants or workers should be subject to those masters or bosses who are even unjust or unfair. And then he says in verse 1 of chapter 3, what we saw last week, even wives who are under an unbelieving husband should submit themselves with respect and honor for God's glory and for the ultimate salvation of their husbands, if God wills. You see, Peter's been focusing on something very specific here. He's talking about disenfranchised Christians in new difficult situations of life. He's talking about the tension of living in a fallen world while now being ushered into God's kingdom. He's talking about living between two worlds. How to live in this world while not being of it. That's the primary reason for him addressing wives in chapter 3 verse 1. And I think after he does six verses on wives, he can't help but but say something about husbands. It's parenthetical, but he can't help himself from giving a quick parenthetical word to believing husbands. And keep in mind, that was the goal in addressing wives with unbelieving husbands. The hope, verse 1, is that they would see your godly conduct, wives, and they would come to believe. They would be won over with that godly conduct. So I think Peter is writing to perhaps those kinds of husbands, perhaps some that will be saved or have been saved. Verse 7 is kind of a quick answer to anticipating their question. Okay, my wife has won me over. I've seen something supernatural. I'm now in Christ and of his people and with him in this whole thing. What now? What's that look like? What, what is a Christian calling for a husband? But there's one more thing, if I can belabor the point, there's one more thing to say about why there's this disproportionality of Peter's words to husbands and wives. And I think this is the most important one for us to take note of. Yes, Peter gives more words to the wives than he does to the husbands, but he doesn't say less to the husbands than he does to the wives. It's power-packed, this verse. It's loaded. It's superbly succinct. Peter doesn't say less. He just says it with less words. 
I think what he gives us here in verse 7 is three quick punches to the chin and then three pats on the back. Or if you want to put it more gentlemanly, he says there are three responsibilities of husbands and then he gives three reasons for their responsibilities. I don't know why he did it so succinctly. I don't know why there are three quick punches to the chin and then three quick pats on the back. We don't know. Maybe he knew that men have shorter attention spans or that men don't do no good at no reading or something. Or as my wife said, uh, as I asked her this week what she thought about it, she said perhaps he believed that men were different kind of learners and the ladies liked a story about Sarah in the Old Testament. Oh yeah, I can picture that. And men just needed to be told what to do. It was good enough for them. Just the facts, ma'am. Whatever the reason. This verse is not short on significance and weight and even specificity. So three responsibilities, and then we'll get to three reasons. The first responsibility, husbands, is to live with your wife. It says that. Live with your wives in an understanding way. That might look like it's a kind of throwaway phrase. Live with your wives. That's a given. You might think, that's not worth a point in the sermon outline, Ryan. It's too obvious to be noteworthy, to live with them. Of course, you're supposed to live with them. But but think about it. Peter could have just said, be understanding, husbands. He didn't word it that way. If that was really his only point in that first phrase, he could have said, be understanding. But he said, live with your wives in an understanding way. And when he said, live with them, he used a Greek word which means... Commune, commune, not just geography, not just space and time, not just proximity, relationship. You see, life and wife are inexorably linked together. At least they should be. They're linked together in a way that life and possessions aren't in a way that life and job isn't or life and hobbies or dare we say even life and kids aren't life and wife are linked together in some sort of supernatural mystical way for God's glory it's a theological picture So we're told right from the beginning of the story of man and woman in this world, back in Genesis 2, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. I think that's what Peter's getting at when he says live with her. He doesn't just mean stay with her. He means live life with her. Let your lives become one flesh. Life, that's the plan in marriage, that two lives are becoming one life, not just getting along, not just getting by, but growing together, growing in each other, growing as each other. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 9, tells us to enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your life. Enjoy life. Life with your wife. Again, Solomon here in Ecclesiastes could have said, enjoy your wife. And that would have been enough. 
but enjoy life with your wife. Wife and life are inexorably, I can't say that word, why did I put it in my notes? (laughs) Inexorably, there, linked together. It means have fun with her. It means enjoy her. Enjoy things with her, time with her. To live with her means time together. There's no shortcut here. I mean, God's plan isn't that you get the, the CV at the beginning and you read it and you go, oh, here are the facts about you. Or you get a readout on a dating site and you go, okay, well, here's what I need to know. And that's it. No, no. Where, however it starts, however, in, whatever information you have at the beginning of your marriage or before, it, it's grown, this relationship, with time together. You commune with her. You don't just dwell with her. She's not just a roommate with benefits. She's your life. She's your other half, but that wouldn't even work because the two make up one. It's a whole. Men who aren't married, you're of marriable age, this is a noble pursuit. You were not made to be alone. It is not good for the man to be alone. Find a good woman. When you do, you'll find a good thing. Spend time with her. Communicate with her. To live with her means to to have words with her. Not just be on computers or mobile devices in the same room at the same time. How often we see that now out at restaurants. It used to be that you'd see an old couple that was having dinner together and they didn't speak and you went, oh boy, I hope that's not us someday, honey. I hope that's not us. Now you look around and it's not just that old couple. There's also a cute couple that really loves each other, a cute old couple, so googly-eyed and wiping things off of lips. That's great when you see it. But what you see more than anything these days, dates going on, and it looks like a husband and wife are across from each other, and it looks like they're texting each other. (laughs) Yeah, what are you going to get? That sounds good. That's not time together. That's not communication with each other. Lives lived together and two flesh becoming one are not things that are easily fostered with the glow of the light from a screen on our faces. It means shared experiences, not just shared links. It means living life together in a rhythm with each other. If I can dare to get more specific than the Bible does, let me. I think it might imply, if possible, go to bed together and rise up together. That's part of the rhythm of life and the experiences of life that are precious and good and to be enjoyed and part of growing together. Sleep in the same bed. Husbands, get your snoring fixed. For God's glory, for the Bible's sake, for the love of your wife, get your snoring fixed and don't get used to the couch and don't get used to the guest room. As much as possible, eat together. Eat together. If you can, make it home for lunch a couple days a week. Do it. 
laugh together, cry together, share stuff of life together, share stuff together. Now, I I can't say this is sin, but I, I always get nervous when I hear of couples with separate bank accounts. Maybe I'm just simple-minded and old-fashioned or something, but it seems like there could be all kinds of dangers and very few benefits with splitting up money. There's mine, that's yours, you do with yours what you want, I'll do with mine what I want. Maybe even more problematic is when computers and cell phones these days have personal passwords on them and husbands and wives don't know the other's. You see, the more you divide up your lives and the more comfortable you get with it, the more the next divide will be easier and eventually it will snowball. I mean, I've only been a pastor for, I don't know, a a dozen years, baker's dozen. Um, I've seen it a lot. I've seen it a lot that you can trace this divorce, this separation from different bedrooms or different bank accounts or life just getting more independent. And of course, then we also should say it it doesn't just mean geography to live with your wife, but some of you need to hear that too. Maybe you're on the brink. Maybe you're talking about getting an apartment. Don't give up. Don't move out. Hear this command from the Lord. Live with her. And ask yourself, husbands, ask yourself, are your lives more one or more separate as the years go by? Are you sharing more or sharing less? Are you becoming more one person or more independent? Is life together more and more just geography and experiences that are forced upon you like kids' soccer games or church or family dinners or something. Live with your wife. Secondly, understand your wife. Understand your wife, husbands. That's what it says. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally, the Greek reads, live with her according to knowledge. And some think that refers to knowing and understanding God's plan for marriage. Now that you've been redeemed, it could mean that. It certainly should mean that. Christians should grow in that. Christian men should grow in understanding the Bible and God's calling on husbands and husbandry and what that looks like. And you should know Bible verses about communication and relationships and covering sin and what love is and what it looks like, yes. But I think what Peter means here instead when he says live with her according to knowledge is live with her according to a knowledge of her. Understand her. Increasingly get to know her. Observe her. Watch her. Husband equals student. Student of wife. So what makes her tick? If I just asked you that general question, what makes your wife tick? For how long could you talk about that? What does she like and not like? You might say, I don't know. She'll tell me. I don't need to know. She'll just tell me. No, no, no. It doesn't count. What makes her feel loved? 
Many of you have read that book by Gary Chapman called The Five Love Languages, which is so applicable here. It's not a, a, a Bible thing necessarily, but, but if we were going to you know, maybe put it after the maps in our Bibles, it would be a decent place for it anyway. It's really helpful to think about love being communicated in five different ways, generally speaking. And, and we either speak a, a certain language because we, uh, because we receive and hear that language or we're trying to adapt to our spouse that likely, most likely, speaks and hears a different love language. Gary Chapman says some feel most loved with words of affection, and others feel more loved with quality time. Some feel more loved with giving gifts or receiving gifts, and some feel more loved with service, sacrifice. Some feel more loved with physical touch. You probably know how you feel most loved, and that's probably how you speak to your wife in love, but she may speak another language. Do you know that? Do you know what hers is? Do you know what makes her smile? What makes her laugh? Do you know what she likes? Things that are just her favorites? Is shopping for your wife a torturous thing because you think, I don't know what she wants. I don't know what she likes. I'm always going to get it wrong. I always do. So... You know, fifth gift card in a row, sure, let her get something special for herself. Do you know her schedule? It's part of knowing your wife is knowing what she's doing tomorrow, right? What's on the horizon for her? Do you know her current worries and burdens, the things that are on her mind when she puts her head in the pillow at night? Do you know how her day went? Can you read her? Not perfectly so. We're growing in these things, hopefully, right? Do you text her in the day to find out how her day is going? Do you text her in the day for her sake? Not because you have to, not because she texted you first. How's she doing with the kids? How's she doing with friends? How's she doing with her parents? Or how's she doing with your parents? Do you know what she thinks is romantic? Do you know what pleases her in the marriage bed? That's related to knowing her and understanding her. Do you know her weaknesses? Not so you can harp on them or use them against her later, but so you can navigate certain situations. You can, at times, we're needed to tiptoe around certain things. At other times, help her see her, her, her need, her sin. Other times, have compassion and give grace, knowing that it's not her brightest spot, her best thing. You want to know more about your wife? Well, ask her. Ask her how her day went. And when she answers, make sure the phone isn't in your hand. That's too great a temptation for most of us. And this circles back to the first point, that you have to spend time with her. There's no shortcut. To live with her is in part what it means to understand her. Are you growing in that? growing in this lifelong assignment that God has given you to study, to take notes, mentally or otherwise, to improve. An understanding husband should not be an oxymoron or a punchline. This is masculinity defined. The world may say that masculinity is marked by the size of your Mud flaps, number of cylinders in your engine, number of tattoos on your arms, or 
how well you do with your fantasy team, your golf score, how big your paycheck is. 1 Peter 3, 7 is defining not just husbandry, but masculinity. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 tells us to be watchful and to stand firm in the faith, to act like men and to be strong. Be strong in these ways. Live with her, understand her. Thirdly, show honor to her. Show honor to your wife. Peter says, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. This means not just honor like it's theoretical or out there and it's, you know, in your mind she gets a wreath or a gold medal or a small trophy. This means cherish her, prize her. And that starts first and foremost in the mind and in the heart, your mind in your heart. This implies meditate on your wife, not her faults, which is what you usually do. It's what we all usually do. That's where we want to go when we want to meditate, rehearse things. We want to rehearse the bad, the injustices, the failures. But Peter, I think, is calling us basically to meditate on all of our wives' goodness and glory and all of her best features and to dwell there and stir up love and affection and joy for those things. But it can't just remain in our brains and in our hearts because Peter says, show honor to your wife. Show it. Show her honor with your speech. That might imply... Why don't you bury those sarcastic put-downs? She's not your college buddy. She's not one of the boys, and you shouldn't speak to her like one of the boys. If you do, you're missing what Peter's talking about here. You're missing true masculinity. You're missing parts of a happy marriage you could otherwise have. You might say, well, she likes it when I talk to her like that. No, no, no. She's gotten used to you talking like that, and she is... She's responsive and flexible in her love for you that she's embraced sarcasm as a love language. You might say, well, I'm horrible at communication. Ryan, you're a word guy. Part of your job is communication and in words. You have to think of what to say all the time. I'm sure it's easy for you in your marriage relationship to speak to your wife in flowery, fancy terms of love. No, it's hard for all of us. It's not easy for any. It might be easier for some than others, but what our wives want, what God wants, is us to grow in this. Our wives want to see our hearts communicated. They they want to hear our love, even if there's stammering and, and stumbling all through. The stammering and stumbling can express that love. One of my foibles, I may have told you this before, I I remember one time my wife and I were having an intimate moment and I was saying something and this is what came out. Baby, I love you as much as anybody. (laughs) Which means, that guy over there, I love him as much as you. (laughs) But she laughed and now it's a great joke in our house and you know. She knew what I meant. She knew I was like, oh, trying to grab words and grab those. And no, those don't. I shouldn't have put those in my mouth. <laughs> we honor her needs. 
We provide for our wives. We're not to be stingy with our wives. Not to be stingy with gifts. We should be wise with our finances, but we shouldn't let wisdom be a mask for our stinginess. Our wives should never wonder whether we would want to give her the whole world if we could. We should honor her with contentment of her body. We should should honor her with no wandering eyes. We should honor her with earning her trust and her confidence in our one wife, one woman-ness. We should honor her with our actions by serving her and sacrificing her and doing things without complaint for her, noticing when we can help. We honor by listening to her, listening when she's talking. We honor by looking for ways in which we're obtuse, dumb, Someone sent me this little funny observation this week about the culture of barbecuing. Anyone else get this? It looks like my backyard, the average day that I'm barbecuing. Uh, It's funny. Listen to this. Here's what happens, men, women, and the barbecue. Women buy the food. Woman makes the salad, prepares the vegetables, makes the dessert. The woman prepares the meat for cooking, places it on a tray along with necessary cooking utensils and sauces and takes it to the man who's lounging beside the grill, beer in hand. The woman remains outside the compulsory three-meter exclusion zone where the exuberance of testosterone and other manly bonding activities can take place without the interference of the woman. The man places the meat on the grill... And the woman goes back inside to organize the plates and cutlery. The woman comes out to tell the man the meat is looking good. He thanks her. He asks if she will bring him another beer while he flips more meat. (laughs) Then the man takes the meat off the grill and he hands it to the woman. The woman prepares the plates and salad and bread, utensils, napkins, sauces, and brings them to the table. And after eating, the, the woman clears the table and washes the dishes And then most important of all, everyone praises the man and thanks him for his cooking efforts. (laughs) And the man asks the woman how she enjoyed her night off. (laughs) Upon seeing her annoyed reaction, he concludes that there's just no pleasing this woman. (laughs) That's funny, but obviously it shows just how dumb we men are. We laugh because it's probably pretty common. We honor our wives even to others, right? We praise her in the gates, like it says in Proverbs 31. We never refer to her as the old lady. We honor her in front of the kids. When our wives have made a meal for us and she says, it's time for dinner, we put down what we're doing and we come promptly and dad leads the way. You see, for many, marriage is reactive and thoughtless lazy and selfish. And we know that all too well, don't we, men? And we also know this, that God is redeeming us from all of that. He is rescuing us from our futile old ways that we inherited from our forefathers. He's calling us instead to be proactive and thoughtful and purposeful and sacrificial like God is to us, like Jesus is for us. 
And just like last week, we say this week as well, we note that there are no qualifications here. Husbands may want to say, oh, that sounds fine, but you don't know what she fill in the blank. But there's no footnote here, is there? You see, every time the Bible deals with marriage or a specific spouse, it puts the laser focus on one spouse at a time, as if to say, you mind your own business, you do what you got to do, you got plenty there to keep you busy. I'll work on her. And wives, the same applies to you this week, as much as it did last week. You, you're hearing some things this week for your husband that you want him to hear loud and clear. You're thinking of specific examples, and you're hoping he's thinking of those specific examples as well. And so you're eager to get home to tell them these things. But that would be forgetting last week's message about winning him without a word. I would forget last week's message about resting in God's work to change the heart. Don't trust in your ability to be prosecuting attorney. Don't forget attacking and nagging and badgering and belittling and arguing. These are not the tools that God has put in your toolbox. Let's focus on ourselves before the Lord. Three reasons why we should do these responsibilities, men. Why live with her, understand her, and honor her? As if being commanded isn't enough, that certainly is enough. But, but Peter also gives three reasons. One, she is a weaker vessel, he says. He says, live with her in an understanding way, showing honor as the weaker vessel weaker vessel now of course that doesn't mean she's weaker morally or weaker spiritually or weaker intellectually some commentators have ventured this sort of controversial waters to say that women are generally more sensitive and more emotional and more in touch with their feelings for better or worse and hence they're slightly more fragile you could say And that's what's meant by Peter here, that they're weaker vessels. It may be true that men can be emotionally like a bull in a china shop and their wives can be like the china. That's sort of a men are from Mars, women are from Venus dynamic. Yes, there are emotional differences. That's not what Peter is talking about, though. But don't miss the point, men. Some women are roses and you don't handle them with... Andre the Giant-like hot dog fingers. It's just not going to go well, right? They, some women are, they're violins, they're Stradivariuses, and, and, and they don't do well in the hands of ape-like men. But that's not what Peter's talking about. Most commentators say that when Peter talks about a weaker vessel here, he's referring to the woman being weaker physically. Of course, there are exceptions to that generalization. I'm sure Serena Williams would kick my butt in a fight. Don't want to know. But it is generally true that men are physically different than women. That's why there's an NBA and a WNBA, right? That's why there's men's golf and women's golf. That's why the only female Navy SEAL so far, well, let's just say he didn't start out as a him, as a her. So there's undeniable physical differences between men and women, and most commentators see that 
That's what Peter means by the weaker vessel. So they, they imply, protect her and, and care for her. Open the door for her. Stand up for her if need be. Carry heavy things uh, on a road when you're walking next to the curb. You stand on the edge of the curb, not her. Again, all those are, I think, good and right. That's part of showing honor to her. But again, I don't think that's what Peter's getting at here. I think when Peter says that the wife is the weaker vessel, he's referring to that order of the relationship of husbands and wives in leadership and submission. He's saying in that ordered relationship of male leadership and female submission, there is one who voluntarily submits herself and places herself in lesser authority. And that that places her in a potentially vulnerable position. Vulnerable to the ups and downs of her husband's leadership. I mean, he can say, we're doing this, and, and she doesn't have a trump card, however sinful her husband might be. She can persuade and should, but she's putting herself in a voluntary position of weakness, you could say. Not inherent weakness, not because she is weak, but for the sake of Christ and for the picture of Christ in his church. So Peter's saying, men, husbands, honor her as the submitting one. That's not easy. Your task and your calling is not easy. Neither is she is hers. Don't approach your leadership to her in a haughty way, but a sympathetic way. Lead her gently and thoughtfully and patiently. You don't use the trump card. Jesus is a gentle shepherd. You be one too. You lead by communication, not just edict. You lead with your words. We tell our kids, use your words. Husbands, use your words. And love her. And be patient. She's a weaker vessel. Secondly, she's a fellow heir of grace. A fellow heir of grace. Since, notice the since. Peter tells us this is a motivation, a reason. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. We're to treat our wives as co-equals in the kingdom of God. We're not mediators. Spiritual leadership doesn't suggest that our standing before them, uh, standing before the cross with them, has us on one inch of higher ground than than them. It's all level at the cross, as we often say, rightly so. It's the same for all of us. We've been born again. We have the, the same inheritance. God is our father and our judge. We've been ransomed by Jesus' blood. We're now pieces of his temple for his presence, like chapter 2 talked about. We're priests in his temple to do spiritual sacrifices. Christ is our cornerstone. We share that in him. We're we're together a chosen race and a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We both have the experience of mercy and only mercy by his grace according to Jesus' precious blood. Together we're sojourners and exiles. Together we share the same destiny, the same hope, the same suffering. We've hitched our lot together. And that's part of living with her as well. We're fellow heirs. The grace of life is something we share. 
You see, I think when Peter says live life with them, he doesn't just mean live budgets with them and live circumstances with them, experiences and date nights and kids and, and house with them. I mean, in part, isn't he talking about our sojourning? He's lived out together. We're pilgrims together. Our Christian lives are lived out with each other. Yes, there are individual aspects to our relationship with the Lord, but so much should be shared, just like it is in the church. If the church is a family, and if the church is made up of partners in Christian growth and Christian mission, then my wife is to be my closest family member and my number one partner in my Christian growth and in Christian mission and vice versa. I'm to be her closest family member and her best partner in her pilgrimage. She's a fellow heir, so live life with her and live life with understanding. One more motivation. Thirdly, otherwise, prayers are hindered. Otherwise, prayers are hindered. It ends with this, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, before we talk about what that means or how prayers can be hindered, let's just start with this maybe more obvious observation. If Peter is motivating us men to love our wives so that our prayers may not be hindered, then he's assuming this. Christian men pray. Christian men are prayers. It's part of their lives. None of them are perfect in it, but they want more of it, and they aim for more of it in their lives. And it's not just that Christian men pray, but Christian men want God to hear their prayers. That's assumed. It assumes that Christian men want to pray prayers that are effective and are answered and are according to God's will and that Christian men would actually take note on what the Lord seems to hear and what he seems not to hear. Does he not hear some things? Oh, of course, I mean, he has infinite hearing, right? He's everywhere. It's not that he doesn't really hear, but prayers can be hindered, apparently. Listen to how it's put in the book of James. This helps us understand something about prayer. In James 4, James says, You do not have because you do not ask. And most of us know that verse and and like it, right? You have not because you ask not. Maybe you learned from the King James Version. But the verse goes on. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Some prayer requests are a because it's all about you. It's all about your wants, your desires, your passions. Sometimes you don't get because you don't ask. Sometimes you did ask and you don't get because it's all about you. On the other hand, James 5 says... Verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Here's an example. Elijah, the Old Testament, he was a man with a nature like ours. He was just a dude. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain in the earth. Then he prayed again. 
and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. It wasn't just a magic trick. He was praying for God's will to be done. He was trusting God to know better than he knew, but he was righteous, and he was fervent in his prayer, and the Lord answered it both times. Okay, now listen to 1 Peter and go to chapter 4. Would you turn there? There are two more references to prayer in 1 Peter. We're getting close to being done. But it's important to understand what Peter means when he says prayers can be hindered. It helps us to look to 1 Peter 4, verse 7, another reference about prayer. Here it says, The end of all things is at hand, therefore, here are actions and mindsets. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Somehow, actions and motivations and mindsets can affect my prayers. Go back to chapter 3 of 1 Peter, in verse 12. Here, Peter's quoting from the Old Testament, and he says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Either ears open or face against. So yes, in case you're wondering, actions and motivations and mindsets can affect how God hears our prayers and what he does with them. It's as if God says in the context here of 1 Peter 3, 7, you know that girl you got? If you don't listen to her, I'm not going to listen to you. If you don't seek to understand her, I'm not going to try very hard to understand you. If you're not going to care for her, then in discipline and love for you, I will withdraw some of my care for you. You see, there's a hypocrisy to call on God for this or that and yet be content to ignore his commands and his callings in some other part of our lives, not least this massively significant part of our lives called marriage and representing Christ in this picture of Christ's love for his church. And all of that probably doesn't sound serious enough to you. Look again at 1 Peter 3.12. See what it says there? Two kinds of people. Those whom God's ears are open to and those from whom God turns his face away. You see, worst case scenario It's not just that we miss out on a couple of blessings or there are a couple of unanswered prayers like you would have gotten the new job but you didn't because you don't love your wife like you should or you would have gotten that car but you didn't because you're not sacrificial like you should be. No, worst case scenario is that we're cut off from God. Worst case scenario is that we're cut off from God. That's the scary reality of Prayers being hindered. Prayers being hindered hopefully one day breaks through to prayers being received freely, gloriously, unhindered, uninhibited prayer. But the other option 
is that we would prove in time that that wasn't just a temporary thing that God was doing, but that his ears have never really been open to us. We are among those that he has turned his face away and we've deceived ourselves. That's scary. That means that this verse here at the end, this last phrase, is not just about prayer requests. It's about perseverance. Staying with this thing, not giving up in this thing, proving that it's real. So persevere in and through your marriage. What I mean is persevere in the Christian life and your relationship with God in and through your marriage. If we don't care for our wives and if there's no modicum of reflection of Christ's sacrifice and love in our homes, we may not have experienced it eternally and personally for ourselves. We persevere in and through marriage, not just for the sake of marriage, but because there's something greater than marriage. There is something greater than wives here in this verse. God says through Peter, love your wives and understand them, live with them and honor them, cherish them so that prayers aren't hindered. And that should make us tremble because the only thing greater than wives is God. The only thing greater than fellowship and the intimacy of marriage is communion with the God who made us to walk with him in the cool of the day. So men, let's first be praying men. Let's love what God loves and let's take his assignment seriously and let us take refuge in Jesus. Let us hear these gospel words that Jesus is a better husband than you. Hear this from Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's a high calling, but here's the promise behind it. He did it that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church and all the bad husbands in it in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and that his church and all the faulty wives in it might be holy and without blemish because he nourishes and he cherishes his church. So having been nourished and cherished and loved and cleansed, purified, sanctified, redeemed and cared for, led and loved, let us do the same with each other for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus which washes away the darkest of stains, which cleanses consciences pure. And yet we don't want to get there too quickly, Lord. We need your help to be convicted where we need conviction. Help us, we pray, for your glory. Help us, we pray, Lord, to satisfy us with your love. Help us, we pray, to be strong in the grace that you supply. Help us, Lord, to be vigilant and earnest in our desire to reflect you to the world and to reflect you in this 
holiest of callings in contexts, this thing of marriage. May we go about our marriages humbly under your word, by the power of your spirit, for your glory and with your help. Because Jesus is our husband and perfectly so. We pray in his name.